This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Max Jeffrey and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and James Forsyth. British troops have been sent to Poland to help stem a flow of migrants coming from Belarus. James, what's going on here? So, essentially what we've seen is Alexander Lukashenko, uh, the dictator in Belarus, is, is attempting to weaponise the migrant crisis. They, they are essentially granting tourist visas to Belarus to people from Syria and Iraq and other Middle Eastern countries, bringing them to Belarus and then essentially pushing them towards the Polish border. And they are essentially attempting to weaponise the migration crisis to their benefit. And I think what you are... And this has then led to Poland moving troops near the border. Belarus has responded by that by saying, well, if you're going to do that, we need to have joint patrols with the Russians. And you've got a situation where Poland, a NATO and an EU member, is deeply concerned about the situation. There are reports, and this this is obviously hard to verify given the the report the restrictions on reporters getting close to the border but there are reports that the Belarusians are essentially kind of arming these migrants with kind of you know clubs and other kind of basic weaponry and kind of encouraging them to try and cross the border and so I think you have got a situation where the Poles are getting very worried how do they deal with this I think the deployment of these this small relatively small deployment of British troops is meant to send a message basically saying hang on a second if Belarus and Russia have the idea of trying to engineer some conflict here, engineer some firefight or something, then you aren't just going to end up in a scrap with Polish troops. NATO is going to get dragged into this very quickly, and the UK as a NATO ally is sending a presence. I think this is a it's a very interesting story because this comes at the same time as you've got the, the US warning that Russia might be considering an invasion of eastern Ukraine or, or kind of essentially formalising the informal presence that Russia has on the ground in, in eastern Ukraine. So clearly what you see is probing to see what the Western response is, how seriously the West is prepared to take this stuff. And I think you see the US warning about Ukraine that Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, issued on Wednesday, this UK deployment today, they are trying to say... If you try something, there will be a response and hope that that will prevent Russia or its proxies from trying it on in the first place. Fraser, we know the US wants to withdraw attention from Europe and the Middle East and to focus more on Asia. Do you think seeing British troops in situations like this is going to become more common if Blinken's putting some emphasis on that being the Western response? Um, I like to think it doesn't get much to do with Blinken and more to do with what Britain regards as responsibilities to be to our neighbours. Right now, Poland is is a friend in need. You've got a situation here where, you, well, I guess this starts with what happened five years ago when the EU paid um, Erdogan to keep refugees out of Europe. That was a very tawdry deal, which uh, I thought at the time would come back to haunt uh, Europe. And now you've got um, Belarus taking this to a whole new level, basically using uh, migrants as a form of destabilisation backed by Russia. So you've got this... It's what what's, uh, the writer Wilka Mancho calls it, a form of hybrid warf- warfare, and he's right over that. It doesn't look like war, technically, but why else would Belarus be flying in people from Iraq and Syria and dispatching them over the border? There's even reports that he's going to increase these flights over the winter. So what we can see here 
is Russia quite cleverly identifying a vulnerability in Europe, in the West, and using that vulnerability, in other words, using its power over Belarus, and also using European divisions to try to cause destabilization. So in that situation, I think it's quite appropriate that Britain will dispatch some troops, not very many um, of them, but simply to say that to Putin, we see you. We see what you're trying to do here. This is an issue of European security, and it's going to meet with a response. If it were left to the EU, there would be no kind of response. The EU has absolutely no idea how to... It's like a rabbit caught in the headlines here. I think they're, they're talking about sanctioning 30 more people from Belarus, and including the, um, the foreign minister and the Belarusian airline. I think that'll be 200 people in total. That's a pretty pathetic response. I mean, Frontex, the EU agency, could go in there and help Poland. But I think I'm right in saying that Frontex needs to be called in by the Poles. And the Poles, being fairly Eurosceptic people, are unlikely to do that. They will happily accept help from Britain. And the, the other thing the EU has been trying to do is to sanction airlines that fly in migrants to Belarus. In other words, effectively do people trafficking. But the EU struggled even to get approval from that. I mean, Ireland has objected, thinking that Ireland subleases a whole bunch of aircraft that um, are used in this. So the EU is paralysed. You've got the West facing destabilisation from a Belarus with Russian backing. In those circumstances, I'm very pleased that Britain or even NATO would actually say to Poland that we do stand with you and we recognise this form of hybrid warfare and we're going to stand up to it. James, do you think this is enough? If the EU is reaching for the familiar tool of sanctions, should we should they be doing more or is the UK's so troop I, presence there enough? I mean, there's actually a good example here of how... Uh, the West can work together in, in, in different ways. So I think you know, NATO should provide you know, military reinforcements to the border, essentially act as a deterrence to, to outright aggression. But would that be a provocation? This is the question, James. If you were to send NATO in now rather than Frontex, would that escalate things? I think, yeah, I think if, if NATO on the Polish side of the border, I think is a legitimate response to what is happening. I think that then, then there is a case for the EU... The UK, the US, Canada, who've acted before in concert on sanctions on Belarus, acting in quite dramatically to take action against any airline or any airline chartering company that is facilitating these actions. And I think that if you saw that group, which has got before, got together before to do sanctions on Belarus, if you saw that group get together and act, I think that, that would have repercussions. If basically airlines that were involved in this were told that you will lose your landing slots everywhere in the EU, North America, the UK, you know, let's expand this as far as possible. You would, you would stop airlines from wanting to be involved in, in being used in this way. So there are steps that can be taken, but I think, it, I think it's important they're taken quickly. And I also think the other thing that we need to see here is you need to send a message to those who wish the West ill that, you know, yes, the US is going to become more preoccupied with Asia, but that doesn't mean that uh, anyone who wants to get up to mischief in the European neighbourhood is going to get away with it. I think longer term, this is one of the reasons why I really hope that Anglo-French relations get out of the dire position that they are currently in. Because the UK and France are the two most significant military powers in Europe by a long chalk. You know, at the moment, the UK-French military and intelligence cooperation is being you know, relatively unaffected by the very bad political atmospherics. But you can't keep a military intelligence relationship insulated from the political tensions forever. 
that that is not doable. And I think it's I think it's one of the reasons why we desperately need a reset in Anglo-French relations to improve things because you need the two predominant military powers in Europe, uh, in Western Europe, to be to be closer and to be better able to work together. It's actually, I, I would like to think of us doing more things to voluntarily help with our European neighbours. For example, um, Sweden right now is offering um, intensive care beds to COVID patients. Romania is having um, difficulties there. I think it's a great idea for Sweden to say, well, here we are, you can fly them over here. I'd love, I mean, right now, 6% of NHS beds are empty and a far bigger proportion of ICU beds in Britain are empty. I, I would love to see Britain doing the same kind of thing, even if we're not in the EU. I think we can certainly take a leaf out of Sweden's book, uh, which, by the way, Katie and Kate Andrews are doing right now. That's why they're not in this podcast. They've gone on a girls' weekend to, to Stockholm. I'm sure they're having lots of fun listening to I'm us. Jealous. Fraser, speaking of relations with our European neighbours and of migrant crises, 1,185 people crossed the English Channel by boat yesterday, which is a new record for migrant crossings in a single day. Lots of places, the BBC, for example, are reporting that this increase is down to milder weather. But more than 23,000 have now crossed the channel over this year, which is up from 8,000 last year. This surely can't just be down to the weather. What's going on here? Well, on a day-to-day basis, of course, weather conditions will, will matter. But the bigger point is that the people traffickers have cracked Britain. For a long time, we were not really part of their game. But now that they've worked out routes, they've worked out a mechanism. They're, um, they don't seem to be getting that much opposition from, from the French on that side of the border. So you can expect this to, to keep coming. We have not been tested nearly to the limits that the southern European countries have had when it comes to responses. So, for example, I, I met a cabinet member earlier today um, just talking about what constituents are getting angry about. And the cabinet member was telling me that you'd think it would be sort of MPs' expenses or how much Jeffrey Cox earns from his legal fees, but it's not that at all. What drives them mad is is border control or lack thereof. The number of people coming over the channel is a real concern right now. And I know that this is causing real problems because Priti Patel has spoken quite tough about this, but as Home Secretary, there's only so many levers she can pull. And I think this is a problem which can get a lot worse. I mean, this is, you know, this is, okay, relatively mild November, but... If this continues over winter, then there will be lots of trouble. I think we need to remember that Sajid Javid, when he was Home Secretary, was called back from holiday. It was about this time of year or early in the new year when these crossings first started. So I think the idea that this will go away when winter falls is a bit fanciful. James, as Fraser says, the government's been quite tough in its rhetoric on these migrant crossings. Priti Patel, the comments about wave machines, and we've seen videos of Border Patrol practicing drills to repel migrant boat crossings is there any sign that the government is making headway on this i think this is an almost insoluble problem i mean that's a real problem for a government that is a government that that has come into office on the back of brexit and take back control because there is no more there's got a fairly potent symbol that you don't have control when you have large numbers of people landing on your coastline in, in a pattern of irregular migration but the struggle I see here, and you see Boris Johnson saying in the pool clip, you know, we need the French to help, the French to stop this happening. The problem is the French will never care as much about people leaving France to enter the UK as the UK does. So there's an asymmetry there. I also think there's a problem here, which is lots of people talk about Australia and turn back the boats, and that's a model. I think that ignores the fact that when Australia was turning back these boats, it was doing it a long way off its coast, far away from the media spotlight. And there were also places to take these people to in between. The UK doesn't have those options here. 
I also think that if you see, you, know, you talked about the pushback techniques that we've seen that the, the border force have supposedly been practicing. If those pushback techniques overturn the votes, I don't think you could, and I don't think, I don't, and I don't think public opinion would long accept you just kind of simply turning around and leaving people to drown. You'd have to pick them up, and then that involves bringing them back here. So the, the people smugglers are achieving their aims. If you look at some of the vessels they are taking people out in, it's exactly the same tactic that people smugglers always use, which is as soon as they get the vessel into uh, or close to UK waters, you basically are in distress, and then you have to be picked up because you, you know civilized countries and societies can't let people just drown. And then you are the people are being brought in, and in some ways for the people smugglers, that is mission accomplished. I, I think this is a very very difficult problem to solve. I also think that it is going to get worse because I think we are going to have an awful winter in Afghanistan and I think that is going to begin a, another migratory cycle from there and countries will always be prepared to basically let people pass through I think you know that the people staying is a bigger problem for a country than people passing through so I, I think we will see more and more of this and I think this is a I don't really think that anyone has kind of good ideas of how to deal with this and I think the problem you've got is that you used to get a lot of this irregular migration in lorries. The, the technology around lorries has got better, so there is less of it. There is now more in this riskier and more visible form of these small boats. But I really struggle to see how the government can solve the problem. I mean, the problem for the government is it's going to raise the salience of this issue by talking really tough when it doesn't know how to solve the problem. I feel I should speak up here for um, my fellow Scott Stephen Daisley, who's written a piece on uh, Coffee House today, arguing the opposite, James. He says that um, that the government absolutely should be turning back the boats. He talks about um, Australia's Operation Sovereign Borders, which was a military-led exercise, which did actually go to intercept these boats, turn them back. And Stephen Daisley says that the figures speak for themselves. Um, there used to be 20,000 people arriving with these boats in 2013. Six years later, it was down to 33. Now, you're going to say that Australia had this, this island and, and we don't. But Stephen's argument is, to quote him here, if the government is serious about border security, it should turn back the boats. And he blames the failure of this on um, lily-livered liberals like me and probably you. I mean, Daisley thinks I'm the ultimate wuss, <laughs> actually, but I, I bet you had me in mind when you wrote half of this stuff. No, but I just, I just don't see... I think the point is, I don't think Australia could have done what it had done if it didn't have places far off the coast of Australia to take them to. You know, these, these boats were attempting a lot longer journey. The channel is, you know, the channel is, is not to sound like a geography lesson, it's 26 miles wide. This is not a big distance to travel. Right, so, Australia, so, so, so why not turn them back then if it's not that? Say, so, oh, sorry, I get back to France, chew. Well, I don't, I think, A, I think you struggle, if, what, as soon as they have reached international waters, the French don't have to take them back, right? And so what do you then do? And I think this is, this is, this well, is. what do the Australians do? The Australians cut deals with smaller countries, nearer, uh, island states nearer them, that were prepared to have processing centres set up on their territory. I mean, I, unless we are basically prepared to... Do, unless the Channel Islands, which would slightly surprise me, was prepared to do a deal to accept these people, which I think is unlikely. There's space in Jersey. Um, <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> underestimate the Isle of, Isle of Wight. And, um, um, no, but I mean, but like, where do you do this? And I think this is the problem, right? I don't see, I don't see where the UK's offshore processing centre is and i also think that the australians because they were further away from media scrutiny i think that was it, it was and, and therefore public opinion wasn't so effective by it. it was easier for them to cope with the fact that sometimes when you're doing this kind of thing you you do tip boats up 
there are consequences to that. Yeah, you, well, I mean, the, the, the politically, the very difficult thing, I wish I wish we'd get Stephen in the, the room here to argue the case out with him, but you would basically need to prepare for several of these turn-back things to go wrong and there to be, like, women and children dying in the channel. And I just cannot see British public opinion stomaching that. So there is... There, there are, so I, I, I don't, this is why I don't think the Aussie rules thing will work. They've got a fundamentally different mentality. I actually prefer the Norwegian system where you deal a lot more effectively and radically with people when they get here. You spend far less time processing their claim and invest a lot of money flying them back if the claim fails. If you do that, the word gets out to the people smugglers that this isn't a game that you ought to play, there's no gleaming prize at the end of it. And let's not forget how much money people are spending to cross this channel. It's thousands of pounds they're paying. They're only paying there if you think that once you get to Britain, there's no reasonable chance of being sent back. If you change that equation, then you remove the economic rationale of the journey. So I'd be more interested in doing that from the sort of... um, from the view of of, try, of trying to save lives. I mean, I'm relatively pro-migration, as Stephen Daisley knows, to his chagrin. I'm, I'm also quite sympathetic for asylum seekers as well. But I think we've just started to face the conundrum that France and Italy have faced for quite some time now. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening. If you want to read Stephen's piece, you can go onto the Spectator website. And why not sign up to our Evening Blend email while you're there? Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash blend where you can get a digest of all the top pieces on Coffee House of that day and some analysis as well from Isabel Hardman. Thank you for listening and join us again tomorrow.